everybody. It's another episode of Scholar Tea, where two scholars bringing you the tea. I'm Shauna. And I'm Cameron Carl. And we're excited to come together today. We're going to get started, of course, with the temperature check. And today's temperature check is describe your mood as if it were a Black history figure. Because, you know, Juneteenth is coming up, y'all. Juneteenth be sneaking up on the people. And I want people to be planning ahead for the Juneteenth celebrations, okay? My mood today, Shauna, is I'm James Baldwin. I am Uncle Jimmy because, you know, everybody's just acting up. And sometimes you just got to remind people about what we are committed to doing. So I am Uncle Jimmy today because there's stuff going on at the college level. There's stuff going on at the state level. There's stuff going on in our country in terms of white folks acting up, in terms of people of color having to constantly remind that we are not going to put up with the bullshit that you thought we were going to put up with. So I feel like I'm feeling Uncle Jimmy today. And it could be I just finished my DEI class this semester with my master's students. And I was trying to give them hope. I was trying not to be too radical for the sense of addressing equity issues, but too radical in the sense of, I don't want to scare you away from being committed to this work. Because if you're not committed to this work, then you are the problem. So I'm feeling a real Uncle Jimmy today. Uh, Maybe I should have gone first. If my mood could be embodied by who I think a person is, I would select Bayard Rustin. He didn't have to be at the fore of everything, but still got shit done. Did a lot of work despite not receiving much or any of the credit. The people that got to see him perform gave him his due, but nothing about not being at the center of anything stopped him from doing what needed to get done. And I do feel that way often these days. Um, given the climate that we're working in, given the the challenges that higher education is experiencing, you know, there's a lot of people that need to be seen and want to be heard and valued. But then there's also a, a contingency of people that just have really big egos and just want to do things for the glitz and the glamour. And I don't think that I need to be that way to do what's right. And so that's how I'm feeling today. I love that. Coleman Domingo is playing Bayard Rustin in a biopic for Netflix. Mm. It'll be out later this year that I'm extremely excited about. It was also just announced that Billy Porter is going to play James Baldwin. And I feel a certain way about that one. And I'm hoping and praying that, I'm sorry if y'all love Billy Porter, but sometimes he overacts. I don't see the embodiment of James Baldwin with him in his previous portfolio, but I'm praying that he will prove me wrong. Maybe he'll get a coach. Oh, you know, sometimes the girls have been acting in the scene, think they don't need a coach, (laughs) child. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, this is a tangent, but I've been watching (laughs) Abbott Elementary and Taraji came on there as Uh Uh Janine's mama and child, she was still Cookie Lions from five years ago. I was like, girl, mm. we can't play this role no other way. I was I was sad because all I could see was Cookie Lions from Empire. So, yeah. Well, speaking of tangents, since we're talking about moods and whatnot, you are coming off of Coachella. So why don't you uh, talk a little bit about that too? Ella, Ella. So this was my fourth Coachella. First one was Beachella. And every year I get disappointed more and more. <laughs> I only go now for the community and the people in which I go with and make memories with. I do feel like kind of a Coachella expert. I understand the do's and don'ts. I understand how to navigate Coachella to make it a meaningful experience. But the artists just don't be doing it for me. And we've gotten, we did VIP the last two years and VIP is expensive. I will not ever go back without it. And this year, the the news headline was about Frank Ocean. Shauna, 
thoroughly disappointed, honey. The, the really? news headline didn't even do my disappointment justice being there. And I understand now that he might have hurt himself uh, and he had some conflict with the Coachella, you know, promoters and, and team. But I was... He's the last headliner of the weekend, Sunday night. It's in, I'm standing there like, well, number one, he was an hour late. Uh, number two, you couldn't really see him. Like he was not on the stage. He was kind of engulfed in the stage. I'll have to send you a picture mm-hmm. of how he set the stage up. And then we didn't understand the concept because he tried to adapt his old show to how, you know, his leg, I believe he broke his leg. Um, and he's supposed to have these ice skaters. And there was just people walking around that were originally supposed to be ice skating. And it just did not make sense. He sounded good. He didn't transition into the songs. So he would finish a song and there'd be like a three to four minute pause. Oh. Also, the graphics on the big screen, because I didn't go amongst the crowd. I was in the VIP section drinking my mm. drink. Uh-huh. Um, so I watch. I usually watch the shows then from this big screen. And the big screen, <laughs> it was like blur. It was in focus. It was like blurry the mm-hmm. whole time. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I need to be high. And I went high enough. Mm-hmm. to be engaged in Frank Ocean's bullshit. So I was very pissed um, walking out. We actually left early. And mm-hmm. I felt bad because DeAndre really wanted to see Frank. Frank was supposed to do 2020. 2020 got canceled because of COVID. He was just really excited to see Frank because we had been planning to see him for so many years. Mainly felt bad for my friend, but mm-hmm. yeah. I do like Frank Ocean, but it sounds like an Escape SWV production. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> I will say though, honey, their LEDs look good, honey. Their graphics are compared good, to honey. Frank Ocean's. <laughs> and and speaking of our friend, I did so maybe something to consider. I've been wanting to go to Blue Note. I just can't fit it in this year. This sounds pretentious. I'll be in Greece, um, but it's in Napa. And I was looking up the dates this year to see if I can make it. And guess who is on the cover page of the Blue Note Festival? It's Ooh. our friend DeAndre. <laughs> is he really? Honey, send yes. that to us. Send me the screenshot. <laughs> oh, I text him like, oh, uh... I have seen this. Yes, I have seen this. I was like, honey, did, did you sign a waiver, honey? Did you Girls, get royalties? Me, but... Your likeness, honey. Advertiser, honey. I digress. Honey. I digress. I love Napa Valley. I've never been to Blue Note, but it's all, it is always doing a weird time of the year. Yeah. It's, it's a bad time of year, but the lineup is always perfect. It looks like a really good time. And so in terms of next year, maybe. Yeah. Or 2025. Well, <laughs> the music itself, just like last year was Erica Badu and a whole bunch of stuff. It's a, it's a really good lineup this time. Smino is going to be there. Like mm-hmm. I just can't make it, but if it's about the music. I think Blue Note is actually the way to go. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love the Napa houses too. Uh, all right. So this episode, our tangent, this <laughs> episode, we are going to highlight our scholar of the week, who's Dr. Jarvis Givens. We are going to talk about some things happening in these academic streets as we usually do. We have a wonderful, enlightening conversation with Dr. Chris Nelson. I'm going to highlight some things that are problematic, of course. Jonik's coming with those jokes and we have some celebrations and some affirmations to lift some people up. Should we get into it, Shana? We should. So our scholar of the week this week is Jarvis Givens, who's a newly named full professor. Dr. Jarvis Givens is a full professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a faculty affiliate in the Department of African and African-American Studies at Harvard University. He studies the history of American education, African-American history, and the relationship between race and power in schools. His first book, Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching, was published by Harvard University Press in 2021. It is a good read. Pick it up on your Amazon. The work trade 
Voices, African-Americans Traditions of Challenging Racial Domination in Schools and Society by highlighting the various intellectual and political strategies they employed from slavery to the Jim Crow era. Givens takes an interdisciplinary approach to studying history, employing conceptual and methodological interventions from the field of Black studies. Such methodological interests led him in partnership with Imani Perry of Princeton University to an exciting new digital humanities project called the Black Teacher Archive. Check out Dr. Jarvis Givens' work, his book, and the Black Teacher Archive. Give it up for Jarvis Givens. And also thinking about positionality and identity and leadership, uh, we're going to spill a little tea. And so this past March, Temple University President Jason Wingard resigned from his post. He served as president of Temple University since July of 2021. So he wasn't there long. Wingard recently served as Dean of the School of Professional Studies at Columbia University, and in discussing his recent departure, the Chronicle of Higher Education described Wingard as a quote-unquote disruptor, someone that was not afraid to face and lead from a framework of change. Much like many other institutions of higher education, Temple's enrollment rates have steadily declined since 2017, and as an open campus in the city of Philadelphia, gun violence was impacting the student experience. Although I would argue that gun violence is disrupting the student experience across the K through 12 and higher education sectors, regardless of location, but that's a story for another day. So Wingard was hired to correct these issues and the expectation was that he did it at a clip pace. It would appear that Wingard's approach was not well received by faculty and perhaps by some members of the student body as well. And it's quite possible that Wingard was not an appropriate selection for Temple's needs. What I feel we should be thinking about and should be up for discussion is the fast evolving role of the presidency. Is this person a leader? Are they a marketer, a fundraiser, a figurehead? I think in the past, in an era where colleges and universities were predominantly supported and patronized by white wealthy folks, the role of the president was also more firmly defined. Some could argue it was an easier time because of the demographics that were laden within the institutions. In the age of high volume information and fast paced tech, the needs of contemporary students are changing at a rate that many institutions are struggling to match. And I personally feel it's impossible for one person to be all things to all levels of constituency across complex systems like colleges and universities. It is for these reasons that we break up focused content areas across different positions. A responsible, formidable president would be one that was self-assured in selecting a C-suite that balanced their knowledge area gaps and character flaws. Former President Stanley at Michigan State University, for example, is someone who led in a knowledgeable way, was decisive, was diplomatic. Still, he was removed from his post by the Board of Trustees. And so I'm not saying that Wingard is someone that we should be defending because I'm not sure. I really don't know. But it does feel like a lot of folks within these roles are maybe being asked to do things that are unrealistic. I'm just curious to know what you think about that, uh, given our understandings of higher education and what's going on in higher ed writ large. Oh, some of them are already set up to fail before the Board of Trustees vote in, in the mm -hmm. inauguration, right? And some of that set up to fail are these expectations 
And then it's who's setting the expectations. And oftentimes these board of trustees, many who don't have the higher education context or the wide sweeping knowledge to understand the context, then that role becomes a political role, right? Who are you appeasing in terms of a board of trustees or if you're a public state institution, the state legislature, alumni, and then all the university stakeholders and constituencies that you are then engaging with. I will never, ever want to be a university president. I have no interest in that. But I'm always drawn to those who are, right? So is it something about the leadership of the position that you're drawn to? And then what type of leadership do you think you can then engage with, right? And I also don't have the full context of Wingard and what type of leader he was, right? But this label of disruptor that is then put on him by the Chronicle, where did that narrative come from, right? And what about his leadership did people feel was disruptive? Was, it the, was he disrupting the status quo? Was he disrupting the expectations of what the board of trustees put on previous presidents? What about him was a disruptor that now he has this, this label, right? And we've seen this happen at other institutions. In some places, I think people walk into it and you have to have an idea that you're some type of figurehead or some type of token, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I hope that not all first, right? First Black person, first woman, first gay or LGBTQ person, Now, hopefully they're not expected to be a token, but if history has shown that no other person with your identities has held this position and now you are selected, yes, you are brilliant. Yes, you could be a change maker and a leader, but some aspect of that is rooted in tokenism, just given the historical implications, both social and political. So then I think what expectations that you didn't set up for yourself going into those roles of president, provost, academic leader of, of these large prestigious institutions are these nice private institutions that have very large endowments. Um, what expectations that you didn't set up to yourself? Because you have to know what game you're playing, right? To a certain extent, but I still, I can't help but notice on the outside looking in when I see minoritized folks or folks that embody minoritized identities in particular exiting what, from what I can tell and what the research suggests at a higher pace than our and white quicker, counterparts. And quicker. <laughs> fast. I mean, he was there for a year and a half, you know? And I I can't help but lean into my understandings of systems theories too. Mm. Maybe they didn't like his particular approach or his personality because they assumed that he should be some well-meaning black man. I'm not quite sure, you know, like, or maybe there was an expectation amongst the student populations that he be a harder champion or a, a fighter for minoritized voices at a harder or higher rate than his predecessors because of the body he walks around this earth in. And so, you know, I I just think that sometimes look at one person's individualized experience and say it's that person, that person wasn't a good fit, that person has idiosyncrasies that don't align with our values. Um, But I don't see us doing that with white folks at the same rate is all. So it's it's just something I'm paying attention to. Again, I'm not saying that uh, his particular performance was the best and, and maybe he just wasn't the best candidate for that particular school at this particular time. But when I see it all lining up to reflect this trend of, you know, people of color that are serving as presidents, queer folks that are serving as provosts or associate vice provosts, 
um, being eschewed out of institutions at a, a higher rate, I, I just can't help but just wonder, like, what kinds of expectations are we placing on them that we're not placing on white folks, white, straight, cis folks, you mm, know? It's the added tax, honey, the added burden. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean... I've come to understand that also we just have an unrealistic expectation what a president is meant to do. And I also wonder at this point, when we look at boards, you know, should we be looking at develop an enhanced structure where the trustees are people that are actually paid and that's their actual job? Because I'm not saying you can't have a different background. I actually think that has added benefit to enhancing the academic mission of an institution. But when you have a whole nother full-time job, you know, somewhere, I don't know, in, in South Korea, and you have cases that you have to mitigate and also maybe pay attention to what's happening at the institution of San Francisco, like, I just don't know how well informed you can be if your job isn't fully aligned with overseeing the governance, the broad governance of an institution. I just don't understand how that could work with sustainability, given the contemporary needs of colleges and universities. Well, that's what's happening in these academic streets. So joining us today is Dr. Chris A. Nelson, who is an assistant professor at the University of Denver in the Morgaridge College of Education, Higher Education Department. Chris received her doctorate in higher education from the University of Arizona Center for the Study of Higher Education. With over 10 years of higher education experience, she has a cross-sectioning of experiences ranging from educational pathways in STEM, policy research, and student affairs. Chris utilizes a native nation-building lens and critical theory that explores the purpose of higher education by addressing the collective and political factors influencing indigenous college students and tribal communities. Her research challenges the socially accepted norm that college is an individual pursuit resulting in primarily individual benefit. We are joined today by the illustrious Dr. Chris Nelson. Hi. Hello, everyone. Um, We're very excited to have you today. And um, of course, we have a few questions. And if you don't mind, we're going to jump straight into it. If we're interested, if you could talk a bit more about your journey through the academy, what drew you to the profession uh, and what keeps you motivated in your career? Definitely. So what I like to share with folks is that students were my primary like reason for coming into the academy. And I didn't know that it was the academy at the time because I was working in student affairs, supporting primarily Indigenous students. I noticed I started to get a lot of questions from them about how do I get to grad school How do I prepare? And at that point in time, I had just had um, an undergraduate degree and realized that if I'm going to do the best job of supporting these students, that I need to know what it means to go through grad school. And I decided to start taking a non-degree seeking course um, at the University of New Mexico, actually called Organizations and Colleges. And that was my first insight into what the study of higher ed was. And I didn't know even then at that point in time that it would lead me down this path. And it was through um, Dr. Alicia Chavez at University of New Mexico that helped me identify 
different opportunities um, in different schools, where ultimately it led me down to University of Arizona. And simultaneously, though, I was also involved with NASPA, with the Indigenous uh, People's Knowledge Community, where within that group of folks, I really started to network and connect with other Indigenous practitioners and scholars who were on various kind of trajectories of their academic career. Some were just starting off grad school, some were in doctoral programs, some were working on dissertations, and some had their uh, doctorate degree. And that gave me an insight into like, oh, this is a real like strong pathway for me that I can start to see myself go down. And even at that point in time, I think I was more rooted as a practitioner thinking that I was going to go back to um, working within like student affairs or something along those lines. And um, it was at the University of Arizona where they really started to cultivate just this curiosity around what is possible within higher education and the role of research and also grounding that within community. And from there, I started to think, okay, what is next? Like now that I'm going to graduate, what am I going to do? And I am very transparent in saying this, that I was never planning to be a faculty member. Even when I interviewed at DU, University of Denver, where I'm currently at, I was like, I don't even know if I want to do this. But I just kept telling myself, let's just see what opens up. Let's just see what type of opportunities arise. And we will see where we you know, where I land. Then I got the job and I was like, okay, well, let's figure this out. And I told myself early on that I was on this three-year kind of pathway. And so every three years, I told myself I would check in with myself and see if this is where I want it to be. And because the first three years of the tenure track was just horrendous for both personal, professional kind of demands, getting kind of used to those dynamics and realize that I need to tell myself that this is not the only place I can exist and do my work. And so every three years, I would do kind of this check-in point. And so of course, last year was another check-in point, which was my sixth year in the academy. And now I'm in my seventh year and I'm still here. So I feel like I'm, I'm doing pretty well. Yes, you are. So Dr. Nelson, we would love to hear as people that follow your work and people that are not familiar with your work, um, your insights and how you've gained from utilizing the native nation building lens. If you could break that down for us and then thinking about critical theory and how that's offered some purpose and some meaning making for you for, for how people engage in higher education. We would love to hear your thoughts. Sure. So I came across Native Nation Building early on in my graduate kind of education um, because it's there's the Native Nation Institute at the University of Arizona, which is really focused on elevating tribal voices in action around building capacity within their nations. But it was really from this more economic perspective of how do nations become more self-sustaining. At that point in time, the conversation of the role of education was a little bit on the secondary role. World. Like there wasn't a whole bunch of conversation of how educators could play an important role in that process or even see educational institutions as really elevating that work. And so it wasn't until uh, 2012 when I was in the thick of the dissertation that uh, Brian Brayboy and several of his colleagues uh, published the uh, post-secondary education of American Indians and Alaska Natives where it's like higher education as a tool for Native nation building and self-determination, that really solidified this notion of the, how higher education can play a role in Native nation building. And so that really directed the dissertation work that I was working on and ultimately led me down this kind of path of saying, I want to make sure that we are considering Indigenous value systems within this practice and 
what are some value systems that resonate with me that can also connect and add to the literature around Native nation building. And that's where I've kind of extended beyond the dissertation role and moved into a little bit more of a nuanced understanding for myself of what Native nation building means in that I really lean into this notion of relationality. Notions of relationality for me is not just about how I relate to people, but it's really about how we relate to the world around us. And thinking about the different nuances of space and place and those aspects in terms of carrying energy and power. Because often when we talk about critical theory, we talk about power in this very dominating way of who holds the decision-making and who is making often decisions that could be oppressive to other folks. But from an Indigenous worldview of relationality, power through uh, Deloria and Wildcat's work, they really harness this idea that it's an energy. It's an energy that runs through all beings, both animate and inanimate that can really um, encourage change and movement whenever they interact. And so theoretically, it made, it made a lot of sense to me, but it also connected to how I saw my world and how I was taught in my life with my family, my community of really being mindful of who you are and how you engage with other people and other elements around yourself. And so you can see that work being played out in different articles that I've co-written with a lot of different folks, because you'll notice that I do a lot of co-writing because I feel like that sort of collaborative thinking really elevates and builds that relational kind of concept to um, who we are as scholars and reminds us that we need to be doing this work in community. So I have a really great paper that's co-authored with uh, Robin Minthorn and myself around college campuses. And we use the construct of power in place to be able to think about how college campus tours have embodied this very racist and oppressive practice. And so how do we reconcile those things through truth-telling and really understanding the histories of higher education? Um, most recently, I was able to co-author with uh, Dr. Heather Shotton around this notion of gifting and how that um, in our research, how gifting is really related to um, concepts of relationality, but also answerability to who we are trying to support in our research. And so for me, this idea around Native nation building was like that seed, right, that that kind of started cultivating the ideas of how do I um, see the research that I'm engaging in relevant to the work that I'm doing and continue that thread throughout. And led it down more an authentic kind of um, framing through relationality that really is at the core of, of how I try to um, embody myself personally and also professionally. Well, this may be related to what you were saying around, you know, being mindful of your own personhood, but thinking about some of the, I think, community building that's happened around Beyonce's latest album, even it, it even occurred at Ash. Uh, what advice do you have for aspiring academics to ensure academia doesn't break your soul? That's a wonderful question. I think it's a question that never gets answered because there's every turn and corner of academia, there's always new challenges, right? You think you got it and then you're like, I don't got it. And so I have three sticky notes that have kind of carried me through the last six years. And some are at my home office and some are at my work office. And, and I'll share with you uh, two of them. One that sits at my office, because I really feel like when I'm at a college campus, I don't feel safe. Like I'll just be a hundred percent honest. Like I am that type of person that once I drive into my parking spot, I'll sit in my car for about five minutes, just decompressing and preparing myself to go onto campus. And it's not to say that people are like verbally attacking me, but there's just this essence that, that I carry or that I feel whenever I'm entering those spaces. 
And so the sticky note that's on my desk says, in this process, remember to honor your family. When I think about academia, I think of it as a process in terms of how I need to make sure that even though I am wanting to have a strong reaction to something, I have to remember, like, I want to honor my family. And so whenever I think about aspiring academics is really thinking about what is that driving home homing device, essentially, like what keeps you grounded. And for me, it's my family, they really matter to me, not just the ones that are living, but the ones that have passed and the ones that are coming in the future, like I want to be able to have um, an impact on those folks in different ways. And so for me, just keeping that grounding force and knowing that you have people around you that are also going to allow you to honor that. So I've actually shared this kind of mantra with my faculty department, because of course, you all know that DU higher ed is awesome. And we have wonderful colleagues that everyone really often shares, like, what are your driving kind of mantras for the for the year. And that was one of mine is like, who am I accountable to? And how do I honor my family? And so they actually help me to make sure that I am continuing that work. Um, the other one is, it's a comment that was made to me by an elder my first year in the academy. Um, I was at a community event, it was over the summer, he asked me, like, how are you doing? I was like, Oh, I'm doing great. You know, nice to meet you just more casual talk. But he kept asking me that same question about three times. And I realized it's like, Oh, he wants to know who I am. And I had seen him around in the community, but really had not had an in-depth conversation with him. And that's when I started talking about some of the challenges that I was facing my first year in the academy of how I was really wanting to be community grounded and how it was hard to know how to balance that because people are telling you that you need to be selfish with your time. You need to start cutting off maybe service obligations. And so a lot of conflicting value systems coming at play. He just made this real simple statement and it was very hard for me to swallow at that moment, but he says, you are making it hard. And I had to sit with that and I didn't know exactly what he meant with that. But what I realized was that he was telling me what I was wanting to do and how I was engaging is what I want to do. And you should just do it. Stop talking about how hard it is and just do it and have that faith in yourself that it's going to be okay. And if it's not valued, and if it's not fulfilling who you are, then you just change it, right? You either leave the space or you adjust what you want within, but you and yourself, like this kind of intellectual rationalizing was making it hard in a way I wasn't just doing. I was thinking I was, you know, kind of um, maybe feeling a little bit too self-involved in what I was thinking versus just going out and doing the work that I knew needed to be happening. And so for me, I think that would translate again to people who are thinking about the academy or navigating the academy is that we need those community members to kind of sometimes shake us straight a little bit and like, okay, you know, like I hear you first world problems, like you just do it, like just keep going and you'll be okay. And so to me, it's it's having those multiple people around you to be able to support you is really important. Thank you for that, Chris, because as my grandma would say, you just gave us a word, right? And a lot of us have heard that before, but it's the reminder and the shift of, of prioritizing what we think is important in the moment or what academia has told us what should be important. So, so thank you for that good word that you offered us on today. You have definitely highlighted some of these things, but I'm going to ask it a different way. And in what ways are you choosing you, not choosing you in a selfish way, but choosing you in a restorative way? In what ways are you choosing 
choosing you. Yeah, for sure. So of course, going back to honoring my family, how I see myself as part as an extension of who they are and, and what they aim to cultivate in our everyday life. However, I know that we live in a very extractive space within higher education. So this notion of giving and giving and giving can be really hard to know when do you say stop. So at my current university, I realized that my giving was becoming a lot more about the institution than the reason why I was here for the community. And what I mean by that was I was like, okay, kind of sit down and think, what are the core aspects of what I want to contribute? And again, going back full circle to what I started with was the student. I want to be here for students. I want to make sure that the work that I'm doing is supporting students right now because they are the ones navigating these higher education spaces. And how is a land acknowledgement or some of these other performative activities that are important? Yes. But how are they supporting our students right now? And I would go talk to them about it. And they're just like a little indifferent. They're like, it doesn't really shape who I am today right now, trying to exist in my XYZ general ed course, right? Like, I don't see that as really helping. If anything, it creates more of this hyper visibility that like Brave Boy talks about is like, now our, our faculty at University of Denver, like see the native students, they want to almost highlight them too much where it feels very tokenizing. And so for me, how do I make sure that the work that I'm doing is actually supporting the students that are in the spaces that I can reach out to, that I can make sure are feeling supported. And that's when I started drawing more boundaries, right? This notion of like, where do I want to go and where do I not want to go? And for me, I can think that I could write it down, but I also know my tendency is to blur that line a lot more than I need to. So I started telling people, my key people on campus, outside of campus, and said, this is where I want to stay. And I need your help to remind me that I don't need to be doing everything in the realm of Indigenous initiatives, but I just need to stay focused on what shapes student experiences today and has implications on them today. And, and so for me, that is how I feel like I'm choosing myself, but also the role of why I came in here, right? The meaning of why I came here, which is really students. And, and for me, being able to connect back with my community is really important. Um, whether that's the local Denver Indigenous community or back home, either at my Laguna or Navajo side of myself, it's really, it's just one of those things that's really important to me. A lot of what you just said resonated deeply with me. So I, again, really appreciate you sharing um, your perspectives because I think a lot of time, um, for a lot of folks that have a community-based approach to their work, um, some of that does get lost in the day-to-day. And, you know, you can find yourself shifting your daily practice based upon the emergent needs rather than what we say we're trying to do, right? Uh, and if I can add something too, I think sometimes there's this, these larger forces that exist and we have to listen to them to help direct us as well. So. A year and a half ago, you know, I was super involved just on all levels within the university across student, you know, student support, policies, tribal outreach. There were these two really significant events that were happening that were trying to bridge some capacity building within the institution. For that time frame, just forces outside of my control restricted me to actually attend these events. And it to me, it was like this larger kind of essence telling me, you need to step back. 
You need to also trust people that are you're working with that they can handle this and that everything will be okay. And if it doesn't happen exactly the way that you want it, it's going to be okay. And so those two events kind of went and came and they were great. We learned a lot. There was a lot of kind of momentum built off that. And so I think for me, it also gave me the permission to let go of some of those face-to-face interactions. Um, I also have a 12-year-old and you know, he's pretty much grown up on the college campus. He's, I started when he was in kindergarten and early on in his like, say kindergarten to second grade, he would be willing to come with me to campus and just be happy to be there. And lately he's been a little bit more like resistant and be like, I don't want to go. I want to stay home. And so then I was realizing too, again, that I wasn't having this dual space of family and community, like where it was now separating. And so I had to adjust my reality of home life that I couldn't just leave him at home because before it was a little less challenging because he was there with me right on campus. But now that he's older and he wants to have his own agency and I have to respect that agency for him as well, that I have to adjust where my priorities lie. And if being home with him rather than running to campus for a student event so I can be there with him matters as well. And how do I make sure that, again, I'm finding that balance between the, the obligations and also the grounding roots of where I'm, where I'm coming from, which is, of course, family. So how do you think, if at all, this relates to the final question, you know, thinking about healing and growing in higher, edu- in higher education, like what are the possibilities for creating or um, developing a holistic, transformative learning spaces, given all the things that we're trying to balance in our lives? So the imagining of possibilities is like the thing that keeps me here, right? The ability to know that I can be creative, that I can bring in the people that I want to help share the narrative of whatever work it is I'm doing. And also knowing that there's this unknown, right? That that we don't always need to know where exactly we're going. We just have to have a little bit of intentionality and a lot of you know, good people around us to just guide us through this. And again, like, I don't want to glorify like the unknown and just the creativity aspect, because I think that there's a lot of opportunity to make mistakes. And then there's a lot of opportunities to find these pockets of affirmations. And the mistakes sometimes are the places where we grow the most. And and I think uh, there's a lot of scholars that talk about the notion of decolonization and how decolonization should not be fun. It's not comfortable. It's those moments in time where you feel like, man, I really messed up. Like I need to rethink why I'm doing these things. And listening to those moments of learning is really important because then that just makes us more strong in our approaches and in particular around our how we set intentions. And when we think about with working within higher education, I'm often telling myself and reminding myself that I I don't want to become too comfortable here because the system itself is still being operated by white supremacy and rooted in settler settler colonialism. And so that history is always going to be attached to these institutions, whether we like it or not. And so when I, if I'm still working within the confines of a higher education institution, I should feel that tension. I, w- I know our goal is to have acceptance and inclusivity, but what does it mean if I feel completely comfortable in these institutions and if they have not been completely dismantled and restarted in a different way? Because in a way, if I'm becoming too comfortable, then what am I missing? How could I be that person replicating harm unintentionally? And to me, that's healing. 
I, I don't know if people would agree with that, but to me, it makes me feel like I have a direction and I have agency over how I want to engage in these spaces. And then again, you can take these risks of trying something different and new. One of the best experiences I had is um, teaching a seminar around decolonizing higher ed. And with the blessing of my community members and a few cultural guiders, they they helped me think of a different way to think about what it means to decolonize higher ed. And so for that class, I created, or we created with my, with my uh, community members, this eight-day week. And through the eight-day week, we set the agenda of how we would meet, where we would meet, and when assignments would be. So on a typical like seven day schedule, for example, we would have all your assignments due like on a Monday and maybe you meet on a Wednesday. But as part of this class, what we were saying was, well, we're meeting on day one of week eight every, and so that day would change. Your assignments would change every week. And so the cognitive kind of challenges that everyone faced, even myself trying to keep on track of what does it mean to decolonize? Like it means that we literally have to change how we have normalized our everyday life. And again, there was a lot of flexibility. You know, if you couldn't make it a certain day because you had another class or if you had family obligations or just something along those lines, right? There was that flexibility, but it also forced us to think about how we've been socialized within education and within learning and why we were feeling these tensions and frustrations. And so for me, that's that creativity aspect right, of being able to expose folks to different ways of thinking. And again, that eight-day week was created with a lot of intention, and each week had a particular purpose, was really guided off of uh, one particular uh, colleague that prefers not to be named, but has been a really strong inspiration in terms of how I see our notions of place and space and how we engage with each other. Well, thank you for your time and energy today and dropping the gems that you dropped, because People are going to pick those up and think about how they apply it to their lives, or they've been reminders of recentering and refocusing. So, so thank you today for your time, Dr. Nelson. One last thing we love to do with our guest is an activity that we call this or that. Uh, there is no middle ground. You have to choose this or that as Shana drops them, as uh, Shana and I drop them off to you. So the first one is so we can get to know you. Are you a cat person or a dog person? A cat person. UFC or basketball? Basketball. Arizona or Colorado? Arizona. Puzzles or wine? Wine. Because I, <laughs> I can take it more places. <laughs> I want to say both, please. Um, <laughs> writing or reading? Reading. Give back the land or give back the land? <laughs> give back the land. <laughs> Well, again, <laughs> there's no option. Um, thank you again uh, for giving space to Scholar T for the folks that will indelibly be learning from you today. You gave a lot to think about and uh, we appreciate you spending some time with us. Of course. And and I just really appreciate the the space and the work that you all produce because it is a labor of love and um, shout out to all my DU higher ed faculty staff and okay shouts out because they do shout listen Sarah, Sarah Fernandez has them listening so shout out to Dr. Fernandez Hortado excuse me I knew her I knew her when she was Sarah Fernandez so, mm. yes <laughs> hey to you hey to you so well thank you again and um, looking forward to seeing you in these scholar streets
as always, we enjoy sharing space with Chris. She's uh, a joy to spend time with and is just always thinking critically and intentionally about people's experiences. So I appreciate you, Chris, for spending some time with us. And let us know some of the gems or takeaways that you are taking away from our conversation with Dr. Nelson. Mm -hmm. So Shauna, should we get into what's problematic? Let's do it. So I'm going to rant a little bit. You jump in if you disagree (laughs) or, you know, because you already know this is very privileged. So don't even call me out on this. I know it's a privilege take that I'm about to offer you all. But child, I just paid my taxes and it was the biggest tax bill that I have ever had. Uh, And I feel like we as pet owners should be able to write off our pets or claim them on our taxes, okay? (laughs) I am not comparing pets to children, but I contribute to society, okay? I adopted a dog that is not a stray and does not need to be euthanized. And I pay a good penny to take care of her with pet insurance, boarding, daycare. And I feel like I should be able to write that off. To go on a work trip, I have to pay for boarding for my dog, which is an added expense. I recognize that I decided to own a dog, just like y'all decided to have those children. And I feel like I should be able to write off the expenses of my pet on my taxes. Well, I think maybe there's something about what it means to be a caretaker, period, right? Mm -hmm. And how is our society valuing caretakers? Because I recognize that that pets, as a pet owner myself, um, they they are a responsibility. They're part of your family. Um, But I would also challenge maybe how we go about developing tax brackets and tax structures to begin with. You wouldn't have to be in a situation where you need to be filing uh, a claim for your pets from the jump. Hello. This ain't popular either, but give me a flat tax, honey. Just let me know. You're going to take 10%. I'm fine with that. Give me the flat tax. I don't mind paying taxes if it's contributing to the betterment of society. That's right. But That's when right. I'm paying taxes and billionaires are not, then there's a problem. And that I think part. a flat, t- you taking 10% of my little salary, take 10% of the billionaires. Like I'm okay with that. I think people can digest that and understand that. But you know, I'm not an economist and this little raggedy nation and a little tax code I'm not a fan of. So I'm going to be quiet, but that's what's problematic for me this week. Well, do you want to laugh? If you go make me. I don't know. I can't. Com- <laughs> 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 no guarantees. <laughs> nah, 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 nah. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. So I will say these days when something happens around the house and I need like Kingsley to hand me something, I'm like, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. (laughs) (laughs) So here we go with the jokes. Why can't Cardi B make it to her interview? I don't know. She was being busy. I don't know. Because she can't get offset. (laughs) (laughs) I love a clever joke. I love a clever joke. (laughs) How do you organize a space party? With Black folks only. Well, that'd actually be kind of nice. Your planet. (laughs) Planet. They orbit the sun. Space party. Oh, space. I thought you said spades. Ooh. (laughs) That's why I said Black only. I thought you said spades. (laughs) I stay away from the space parties. Uh -uh. Mm -mm. (laughs) 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 Uh-uh. That's an inside joke, and you who are inside know what the joke is. 
My friend Lisa recently got her real estate license. Now she my home girl. (laughs) (laughs) What do you call a smoothie with a lot of granola? Smoothie with a lot of granola. Nasty. A roughie. (laughs) Why did the blood sell all his Bitcoin stock? Oh, this is a gang member. Um, I'm not sure. It was a form of cryptocurrency. (laughs) (laughs) Clever, honey. Clever. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Those were good. Those were good today. We want to shout out and lift up Dr. Kayla Briscoe and Dr. Raquel Rawl and all the other scholars who were recently named 2023-24 University of California Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement Fellows. The fellows represent professors, staff, and graduate students from a broad range of disciplines and backgrounds, and they were selected from the largest number of fellowship applications to receive to date. The center focuses on projects that address current issues affecting students, staff, and administrators and faculty, and have direct impact on individuals and communities across campus, particularly those from vulnerable or marginalized communities. Shout out to Dr. Briscoe and Dr. Rawl on being selected for this prestigious fellowship. So Roar Briscoe has been winning this year. Hello. Winner, winner, winner. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Caleb. And I think she's about to get married too, honey. Just keep winning, honey. I love it when the girls are winning professionally and personally. Okay, that's the best type of winning. Okay. Freedom and justice cannot be parceled out in pieces to suit political convenience. I don't believe you can stand her freedom for one group of people and deny it for others. Coretta Scott King. Well, this has been another wonderful episode of Scholar Tea. We are two scholars giving you the tea and we will see you next time. Have a great week, everybody.